Tony Buys a Woman, and Inspector Napoleon Bonaparte Mystery, Arthur Upfield. Chapter 7. Savages and Byron. The fire was the little red and flickering eye of Gamber, the great snake. Tall white pillars encircled the fiery eye, and between these pillars the sweet notes of Gamber's snoring floated on to warn the Aborigines in all Australia that he was out from his chambers under the earth. The fire burned redly amid the white gum surrounding the waterhole. Gamber's snoring was coming from a length of hollow tree called a didgeridoo and played by an Aborigine whose hair and beard were white, whose naked chest and back were cicatricised in fantastic designs and marks. The audience of men stared into Gamber's red eye. Behind them sat the women and the young girls and the children, and all the babies were either asleep or watching with large and rounded eyes. Only occasionally did they move, and then slightly so engrossed were they by the voice of the didgeridoo. The didgeridoo was as thick as a man's leg, and so long that the end rested on a sheet of bark beyond Canute's outstretched feet. The mouth end was but little smaller than the far opening, and from it issue sounds which, to ears accustomed to white man's music, would be meaningless. Canute was telling a story which was first told when Lake Eyre was part of the Great Sea. There was a woman who lived in a cave on a hill, a wise woman, who could see far and heard the birds talking. With her was her son, a stripling, a beautiful youth. Now the day came when a party of women's people were to leave for a distant country to trade magic Chiringa stones for spear shafts. These men came to the women and they asked for a son might go with them and so begin to become a man. The woman consented and the youth departed with the traders and they were gone a long time until the woman anxiously waited and watched from her cave saw them come over a ridge far slowly. Slowly and often she counted them and the number was short by one. The traders said that a great birdman had swooped down upon them and taken the youth into the sky and given him to its fledglings in a nest on a pile of stones. They hid themselves in hollow trees and dared not come out until the night came. So as custom dictated, all the men cut into themselves the morning marks and all the women cut their breasts and lamented for five days. And on the sixth day, the woman called the traders to sit before the cave. She spoke soft words to them and gave them honey ants on palm leaves to eat and sweet water in their gourds to drink. And one by one they fell over and told her that they had killed the beautiful youth because all the maidens rejoiced over him and would not look upon them. And they died. And the woman made a big fire and burned them and she raised her arms to lift to the sky high and permit a tall willy-willy to sweep them up over the world and kick the bones to dust. Was it Canute telling this story? How can a story be told unless with words? You may say that music can tell a story for those with ears to hear but you would be last to say that Canute was producing music. Shall we compromise, agree that Canute was passing on the old stories for those with ears to hear and minds to interpret them? For from that didgeridoo issued no tune, no rhythm, no note to be even imagined as even musical. Detective Inspector Napoleon Bonaparte listened raptly to the story of the woman and the beautiful youth. None was aware that he stood behind one of the white pillars. A lean old man sat beside Canute, his arms rested on his knees and his face rested on the crossed arms. Boney saw Sarah who was nursing a naked baby. Her face was lifted as though pictures were strung between two of the white gums. Mina was there wearing a blue skirt, her body naked above the waist and soft firelight shimmering like golden dew on her untapped breasts. Like many of the others, she was gazing into the heart of the fire. The young man Boney knew as Charlie was there too and he was watching Mina. 
Barney had listened to more than the outline of the story. He heard the tramp of the willy-willy coming across the world, the clash and the crash of pounded bones kicked to dust. He'd seen the cave and the very stones on its entrance, and the woman, tall and graceful, and the stripling son as he walked down the hill to pass into the keeping of his murderers. Barney had felt the wind, heard it in the trees and in the grass. He'd watched the lie swoop down from the sky, the lie which was a giant bird with a man's head. He'd shrunk away from the evil of the bird's face, and he'd thrilled as he watched the agony of the poison liars. He was but halfway from the white man towards these descendants of the ancient inhabitants. He heard and saw the pictures because he knew the story. Thus he could follow and interpret the sounds issuing from the didgeridoo. But when Canute told another story of which he was ignorant, the sounds were of no help, told him no story, but did create a picture of flat water, waving tobacco bush, wind-stirring sand grains. The story was told and another begun, and he received pictures, sometimes blurred, sometimes sharply clear, in rapid alteration. He fancied, for it could have been nothing more than fancy, that he saw a white man heavily burdened. The load he carried was larger than himself. Later he saw a white man crawling on hands and knees, and the noises from the hollow instrument filled their ears, each one isolated. It was as though one laughed as it passed, another cried, another whispered, something he couldn't hear. He saw a man, a slim man. His hair was black and straight. His face was pale. He was groping to identify this man, and did identify him when he was struggling to look, as through fog upon a child whose skin was white and then was black, and in whose arms snuggled a spirit baby created by mirage water. Another picture commanded his mind, stayed there for a fraction of a second, fled into the darkness behind his closed eyes. The flash picture was of a ghost, a woman running from him, and her back, a question mark. And then he was following another remembered story, this time of two young Aborigines who robbed the nest of an eagle, who were captured by a dingo with an eagle's head, and who made them carry him because he had a burr in his foot. The last note of a musical instrument is emphasised by the vacuum of silence, like the bottom of a well receiving a stone. When the sounds of the didgeridoo ceased, there was no silence. The minds of those listening continuing to hear what the ears no longer registered. Boney could not be sure when the didgeridoo stopped, nor when he realised that it had done. On opening his eyes, he saw that Canute was rolling a cigarette. The didgeridoo was lying on the ground at his side and the audience was still captive. He noted too that Mina was the first to be conscious of her surroundings and immediately after that a woman and a young man. Mina rose and soundlessly departed to the deeper shadow of the humpy before the others broke from the spell and those closest in blood to the pure Aborigine were the last to be released by Canute's art. Stepping around the trunk of the tree, Boney leaned against it and brought fingers to the making work of a cigarette. Someone tossed wood into the gambler's red eye and the initiated men moved nearer to Canute and his chief henchman, Murty. Then Boney struck a match. He plied the flame to his cigarettes. Those about the fire turned at the sound, save the medicine man and the chief. Boney went forward, ebony images now frozen, waiting inscrutably. He passed round a right flank of them and seated himself cross-legged when the elders were directly to his front. Dark eyes reflected the firelight, not unlike black opals. Boney smoked his cigarette. Not a word was said, nor a gesture made. It was though they occupied one side of a gulf and could be reached only by him who had wings to fly. Slowly, Boney made another cigarette and casually smoked that to the last half inch. Still no word was spoken. All of them, 
and there were 17 were in excellent physical condition, several being positively fat. Canute wore good trousers and no shirt. Murti wore a blue silk shirt, trousers and tennis shoes. Two were smoking good quality pipes. Knowing he would have to attempt the flight, Bonnie spoke. You are Orobana man and I am War Care man. He knew his assessment of the degree of their nearness to the whites was accurate when Canute said, My mother was Emu Totem and my father was Jeroboa. I'm Emu man. My mother, I don't know her totem. My father was a white man. My other father is my brother and my son, my uncle and my grandfather. His name was Illawali. He was head man of Wakir. The marks of Wakir are on me. Canute stood saying, Let me know with my hands. Boney stood and he removed his shirt and the old man's fingers traced the cicatrices on his back and chest. Then his fingers traced his features and finally his hands to each fingertip. That being done... Boney put his shirt back on and sat down. Long time ago, you sealed to walk air people. Now you white fellow policeman, pronounced Canute. After a long silence, he said, Why do you want from Irobana men? Two spirit people made by Charlie and given to Linda Bell. Canute again fell silent. And before Moti spoke, Boney knew that to the medicine man, the buck had been passed. Murti stroked the thin grey beard falling from his lean face. Oh, friend Yorkie and Mina have gone to the sky, Mr. Wooten and Mrs. Bell, no good for sky. They make sky fall down. Who took them from the playhouse along at the homestead? Kadaicha man. I looked into the little fire and Kadaicha man tell me. Kadaicha man and spirit Mina and old friend Yorkie all go up in sky. Kadaicha man liar, eh? Charged Bunny. Old friend Yorkie go up in the sky maybe, but Mina's still here. What for Kadacha man to not take Mina up in the sky, but take spirit Mina up in the sky? That was as far as he progressed. First Muti and then Canute pushed him back over the gulf, separating the two races, and began to treat him as a white visitor. Muti laughed as though amused, and Canute chuckled mechanically. The other men smiled and joked amongst themselves. They wiggled their toes and they bunched their shoulders and scratched their arms, and they occupied their side of the gulf and Boney side where the white men stood and actually believe Aborigines are ludicrous savages. What say you hand those dolls back to Mr. Wooten to look after Linda? Boney suggested, and Old Canute chuckled again and cheerfully denied any one of his people had taken them. Murti shrugged and stroked his beard. Charlie's old dolls are not in this camp. The old dolls belong to Linda. Perhaps someday Linda come back, then she want them, observed Morty laughing without the slightest cause to laugh. Canute almost rolled over, such was his spurious front, and the others copied his lead. Boney laughed with them, making them uneasy, because unsure if his merriment was real or mockery. Their faces grew swiftly serious when he leaned forward to the fire and withdrew several burning sticks, which he placed with flaming ends together to form a separate fire. Before this small fire he squatted, and across his brunched knees he rested a forearm with a little metal tobacco box, he rubbed his forehead as though it was a magical Turinga stone before sinking his face to his forearm. They became distinctly uneasy, for Boney's spirit might well be about to leave his body and talk with Kodaicha man in the sky. Murti whispered, Canute followed the act, referring to the medicine man living near Buila Wheeler, where he had recently been on investigation. Boney lifted his head. Bilawella fella called Aruki. He didn't tell me long ago time I was coming to Mount Eaton. So you've been talking to Rookie in the sky. What now you say to old friend Yorkie and tell him to bring Linda Bell back to Mount Eaton? 
All you black fellas, good fellas. You've all been looking for tracks. Now you sit down and talk magic like you talk magic to a rookie. You send your spirit, Canute, and your spirit, Murti, up in the sky to talk with Kadaicha man. Tell him to come back with old friend Yorkie and make him bring back Linda. They regain images, ebony images with opal flashing eyes. As he had confused five white men with that morning, so now he left the black men equally confused. Rising to his feet, he stared down into each of the pair of eyes and then left the camp and passed into a wall of the dark night, vanished. If you cannot create a tree, plant a seed. As soundlessly as he approached the camp, he departed from it, and he'd almost gained the road when a singular noise halted him. It was followed by another he could not tab, and crouching to the ground to gain skyline, he saw two figures over a low tree bordering the track. A man and a woman was facing each other. They were holding hands and swaying backwards and forwards like children playing. Silhouetted against a dull screen, it was sharply etched nevertheless. The man freed the woman's hands and then thrust his hands upward like cups. The cups touched the woman's breasts and she lashed out and smacked him in the face. The man laughed, though the blow must have been painful, and when he sprang forward and clasped the woman whose face was tilted to take his kisses, Boney veered to the left, silently walked parallel with the track until he was sure his retreat was unobserved. Well, 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 he breathed. Romantic Byron. Who listens once will listen twice. Her heart, be sure, is not of ice. And one refusal, no rebuff.